Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Well, I have been looking for a way to sneak a Christmas song in before Christmas for, well, to be perfectly honest with you, probably 18 years of doing ministry everywhere that that the Lord has allowed us to, and I've never, so there you go, Christmas in August, come thou long expected Jesus. But it really goes well with uh, this morning's message. Back in Haggai 2, if you'll go there this morning, it really goes with it, and um, if you heard from the reading and then you saw in the song we just sang, you saw that phrase, the desire of nations, and that's in that, that's in that passage. We'll, we'll get there, the Lord willing, uh, later this morning. But anyway, uh, there in Haggai, we do have a minor prophet, so we'll be looking this morning. And uh, it's good to be back from vacation as well. It's good to go up there. It was a lot cooler in Michigan. High was probably 75. There was a breeze most days, 58 in the morning. So it was a little cooler, a little bit more like November here, I guess, really. <laughs> but it was good. It was good to be back, though, too, as well. So thank you all for your prayers as we traveled and uh, had a good time there with the family. In Haggai chapter 2, though, this morning, we're going to be looking there. Haggai is a minor prophet like all the other minor prophets. And they're not minor prophets because their, their message is any less important than the major prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah. It's just they have a smaller volume, you know. There's not, there's, Haggai actually only has two chapters uh, in the whole book, and that's it. And so uh, just a, a smaller message, but not any less important, very important still. And for us today as well. And uh, Haggai began with a message to the people of, you got to build the temple. you got to finish building it. They were coming back. Uh, from, from exile. They'd actually been back for about 20 years when Haggai began to prophesy. And so even though Haggai is in this section of our Bibles, Haggai and Zechariah were actually about the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. So, you know, those two books happen a little earlier in the way we order the books in the Bible, but it's all the same time period. But uh, it, it eventually became a message of encouragement in a very discouraging time for the people. And that's what we want to look at this morning the message that God gave here. There's four messages in Haggai. Each one is dated very specifically, so we can actually get our modern day time period that we would call what month and day that we would call from the month and day that we see here in the Jewish calendar that's given to us. But they had been very discouraged in the time of building the temple. There was a poor harvest, which was the result of not building God's temple and paying attention to their own houses and lands rather than the temple of God. And so God encourages Haggai or God encourages the people through Haggai to build the house, to receive the blessing that will bring, and to be encouraged in the work because it will be a glorious future. It will be a more glorious house than the one Solomon had built before the uh, captivity. Let's read again in verse number one. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you? that saw this house in her first glory. How do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, 
For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once, it's a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. And I pray, God, today that you would be our helper as we we go through today, God. Help us to see the message that you have for us, Lord. Give me the words to say that are your words. Help us, God, as we study this morning, that our hearts would be open to your spirit, God, and the moving of it. In your name we pray. Amen. So in the beginning here of chapter number two, we see, first of all, the word of the Lord. And we see the time period given. This is one of the four time periods, the seventh month, the one and twentieth day of the month. And here we have a very specific time period given to us. Now, just a quick little further background. In 586, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar. We read about that in Daniel. They took them away in captivity. Uh, and uh, that, that happened in 586. Then 538 is about the time that Cyrus the Great decreed that the Jews could, in fact, return home 70 years after their captivity. This date that we see here in Haggai chapter 2 then would be what we call today October 17th in the year 520 B.C. So there's a very specific date that's given there. And that's pretty significant for us because that's whenever there was the Feast of Tabernacles. That's when there were a lot of things going on for them as well. Many people would have been gathered into Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's a very specific reason that God has for giving this. It's the time period between September and October. And also in the Jewish uh, religion, they were very strict about observing the Sabbath. We know that. So these feasts are happening. Then we have the Sabbaths. So the work on the temple had been very slow. There's other reasons that had been there as well. There was 66 years of rubble to clear away from the destruction the Babylonians had caused. There was a lot of things to do to even get started. And then, as we said before, we read in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that there were opposition from the outside. There were people that had moved into that area when the Israelites were taken away, and they were opposing the work of God, trying to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So there was a lot of things going on. So there were about 18 or so years between Ezra, Nehemiah, and now Haggai when the people said, well, you know what? We're just going to build our own houses and concentrate on what we got, and that's it. And I say, why are we we taking time to look? Well, first of all, God gives us the time period, but why are we taking time to look at all of this historical stuff? Well, it's the world they lived in, and it contributed to their mindset about how they were viewing the temple and how they were viewing the work. They were captives. When they came home, the land and the temple were destroyed. And so for a lot of them, they would have been saying, hey, where is the promise of God? Where is the hope? Where is this at? And so really, this is a situation that's probably a little bit more close to home to us than we may realize. Because do we not often ask those same questions today as we look around at our world? Where is the promise of God? Where is the hope? So the time period is very important for us to see because it relates to them as well as to us. And then we look at the players in verse number two. Who are the ones that are being spoken to? Well, first of all, we have Zerubbabel. He would have been the political leader. He would have been the governor because, again, the Persians at this time, they'd conquered the Babylonians. They were the ones that were still in control of the whole area. 
okay? But he would have been called the governor. He was a great-grandson of David, so he's in that lineage of David, but he's not the king. He's just the governor. Then we have Joshua, who's the religious leader. He's the high priest that was there in that time period, and he's spoken to directly. And then all the people, the ones that were left behind that didn't go in captivity, and then the ones that came back from captivity as well, the people are spoken to directly in verse number two as well. And they're the ones that the word of the Lord is coming to at this time. And then we see the next thing, the time remembered and then compared. And so verse number three, God is now speaking. He says this, who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it is nothing? And so God here is not, you know, mocking the people or anything. He's not chastising them necessarily. He's looking at them and, and voicing what the people are already thinking. What are the people already looking at? I think the foundation of the temple was there, but the, the thing wasn't quite raised up yet. It's not as big. The foundation wasn't as big as the foundation of Solomon's. So these questions are from God. He's voicing the thoughts. He's voicing the quiet conversations the people were already having amongst each other. And here's the thing, too, to keep in mind. Because the captivity was only 70 years, there were people they would have been 70 and 80 years old, but there were people alive in Haggai's day that would have been alive when Solomon's temple was up. They would have been young children, but they were there, and they saw it, and they could remember the glory of Solomon's temple. And they would look at this temple and say, it's just not as big. I remember when it was this way and that way. It would not be the same. And so for us today, we can become very discouraged as well, can we not? There may be a time period in your mind where you think, man, everything was better back then. I have that a lot myself sometimes. And we're tempted to think this way, like it was so much better at this time period. It was so much different then. And we're tempted to think that way because of all that's going on around us. We get caught up in wishing for the good old days. And, and the reality is, if we were really, really honest with ourselves, the reality is, is that some of the good old days really weren't all that good. It was probably the same problems, just a different time period. That's one way Satan can distract us from following the Lord and being in the work that God has. It, dist it distracted them from the work that God had given them to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. It could distract us as well. It doesn't do us any good to sit around and be nostalgic all day for a time gone by because it just causes discouragement in our hearts. Because here's the reality. God is still on the throne. He is still at work, just like he was back then. When the darkness seems the strongest, that's when the light can shine the brightest. So the reality is, is what God's about to tell them in verse 4 applies to us today even as well. It's just the question is, do we believe that God is still working? Do we believe it? Do we follow through with it? And so we begin to see number two, the encouragement of the Lord, the encouragement of the Lord, verses 4 and 5. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I'm with you, saith the Lord of hosts. So in between these two verses here, verse 4 and verse 5, we have God's commands and we have God's promises. We'll look at God's commands first. And there's three commands among these verses. They are be strong, work, and do not fear. Three commands that he gives us, and they're spread out over these verses. So the first one is in verse 4, the very beginning of it. And it's actually repeated three times, and it's repeated three times to the same three people that it was in verse number 2. He says, be strong, Zerubbabel. You're the political leader of this time. Be strong, Joshua. You're the religious leader of this time. Be strong, people, and do the work that the Lord has given. 
So when God says something three times, we need to pay attention to it. Be strong. Moses was told the same thing. Deuteronomy 31.6, as the people entered into the land, he said, Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And so not only do we see these encouragements here and these commands, but we see that God is making a link to these returning exiles from Babylon, to the returning exiles from Egypt at the very beginning of the nation of Israel. The same messages are given them here as they were before. Be strong. Here's what it is. It's be bold. Be firmly committed to the work that God has called you to. The work that God has called you to. Be firmly committed to rebuilding this temple today, Christian. Be firmly committed to what God has called you to do. Serving the Lord wholeheartedly. Don't allow the past to hold you back from doing what he commands. Don't allow the past to do that. Be strong. Be committed. Be wholeheartedly committed to following God. And then he says, work. Work. Look at verse 4b. All you people of the land, and saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you. Work. Pastor David Guzik said this, great things are not accomplished without action. And it seems like a very simple phrase, but it's very true, is it not? We have to get up and do things that we're called to do at times. We have to put action to that. And again, here's another reference actually back to what King David told his son Solomon when they built the first temple. King David said this in 1 Chronicles 28.10, Take heed now, for the Lord hath chosen thee to build an house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. I think about the, the, the catchphrase from Nike, right? Just do it. Just do it. Be strong and do it. God's reflecting back again to the work of the first temple. And so in the same way, we cannot afford to sit by and, and not be in the work of God, to be content to let someone else do it, or not be part of it, because God is calling us to do the same thing today that he was then. God is calling us to go out and work for him. The work that God calls us to today, though, is this, to make disciples, to make disciples, to go out and to tell other people about Christ so they may find the same eternal joy and blessing that we have, that they can find the truth of that. That's building the temple today. I like what one commentator said about this section here. He said, what was lacking was dissatisfaction with the things as they were and the consequent drive to initiate action. Resignation killed faith. Has that ever happened to us? We just say, well, it is what it is. Don't you love that phrase? It is what it is. There's nothing we can do about it, so we might as well just keep on whatever. It is what it is. Resignation killed faith. We resign ourselves that it's just the way that it is. We become dissatisfied, but we're not dissatisfied enough to get up and do the work and to have faith in God. The people here in Haggai had become complacent. They'd accepted that the temple was destroyed and we're just going to go on with our lives. We're going to build our houses and live and that'll be it. They had no drive. Their faith was weak. We get that way as well, but God says, no, get up and do the work. And here is one of the reasons why God says get up and do the work. It's the next command. But we have to go all the way to the end of verse number five. So go with me there real quick. The end of verse number five is where the third command is. It says, fear ye not. Fear ye not. Be strong. Do the work. And fear not. Here's what the Bible says about that. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 33, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me 
You might have peace. In the, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, in that passage of John 16, some versions, some modern English versions may say, take heart or take courage in place of where it says, be of good cheer in the King James. And that's what fear not and be strong are all about. Take heart and take courage. Be courageous. Be courageous in following God. And here's the reason why. Because God has already overcome the world through Jesus Christ. We don't have to live in fear anymore. We don't have to live in fear of those things because the world has already been overcome. And we see God's promises. And we go back into verse 4 and see the first promise that God gives. Be strong and work, he said, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. I'm with you. And this is the first real reason that we should not fear, because God is with us. I like what John Piper said. For most of us, the value of a job increases with the dignity and prestige of the people who are willing to do it. In other words, if you were doing something, you were working on a project, there was some kind of involvement you had, and somebody that you esteem to be very dignified, very important, famous maybe, and they were like, I'm going to get in there and do it with you. I'm going to support this with my money. I'm going to pick up a shovel and help. We'd think, man, so-and-so is in this work. I'm going to get involved in this because so-and-so is doing it. So here he goes on to say this. How could we ever then belittle a work when God says he is with us in it? When God is working at your side, nothing is trivial. Nothing, that the, nothing that in the work of the Lord is trivial. Nothing of it is too small. Nothing of it is, is uh, less valuable because God is at our side. The work that we do has dignity, and it has eternal value, and that's the more important thing. It's an eternal value, an eternal kingdom, an eternal home that we work for, not a home to salvation or that we don't work for our salvation, but for going out and, and sharing the gospel with other people and telling them and, and uh, living a life that is glorifying to God. It has eternal value. The same God who did great things in the past is the same one who's still working today. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. At the very end of the Great Commission, Matthew 28.20b, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. After we're called to do the work of making disciples and teaching all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Ghost, what are we told? I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. The Holy Spirit is in us who have accepted Christ as Savior. He is with us in the work. He has been sent to us. So the people here could be courageous because God told them, you can do the work of building the temple because I'm with you. I'm with you. And we can be courageous today in the work that God has called us to do because he is with us always. We can be courageous and fear not in the work that God has given to us. But now the other promise that God gives, and it seems like the same one, but it's very important that there's a distinction here. It's in verse 5a, the very first part. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. That's a very important 
uh, word, and that's a very important promise. And it does have a distinction from what God said earlier in verse 2. Go back to Exodus chapter 29, because this is where the reference is. When you came out of Egypt, Exodus 29, the last two verses of that chapter, verse 45 to 46, God told them this. This is the reference back to it. I want to look at this today. Exodus 29, verse 45 and 46 says, I will dwell among, there's that word again, the children of Israel will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. There it is again. I am the Lord their God. If we're not careful in our modern English, we may think that that's kind of the same thing or whatever, but we have to understand the context is a little bit different. Because today God dwells in us. Back then, God dwelled among his people in the pillar of fire, in the pillar of cloud, in the tabernacle at the Holy of Holies, this mercy seat, in the temple when it was built. God dwelt among his people, and it was a sign of God's favor on them. He was among them. He was there with them. The presence of the Lord in the midst of the people in the Old Testament time was a sign of God's favor. And so for them, when they hear that God is among them, It's an indication to them that the punishment that they had uh, uh, been through in exile was over. The discipline period was over and God is returning to Israel. If you've ever heard it before, remember that in Jeremiah, uh, uh, he saw the vision of the Lord leaving Jerusalem. The glory of the Lord departed. And now in Haggai, he says, my glory is coming back. I'm among the people. And that's very important for them to understand. It would give them hope and courage. The Lord's presence meant that that was the end of the punishment. In the New Testament, though, here's the difference. The Lord is in us. The covenant made with us and with those who accept Christ is greater than the old because his presence never leaves us. We are the temple. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this shall be the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. In Ezekiel 36, 26, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and will give you an heart of flesh. And then I love this one, Colossians 1:27. to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What an amazing privilege, what an awesome thing it is that God made a way through Christ Jesus that we could have the Holy Spirit dwell in us forever. And so we truly can be bold. We truly can be courageous. We can fear not and do the work that God has called us to do. And then finally this morning, we see number three, the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. Haggai 2, 6 through 9, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once, it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. And so what we have here, number three, the glory of the Lord, we have a future prophecy in the first couple of verses that we're going to look at. And recalling, too, that in in biblical prophecy, it's often like going up into the mountains and looking out over one of those overlooks, you know, and you can see there's a mountain range that's maybe just right in front of you. 
and then there's another one behind you, and then another one way off in the distance. You can see the mountains, but very often when you're standing there, there's no indication of how many miles there is. What's the distance between this mountain range and the next one that you can see with your eyes? That's kind of the way the Old Testament prophecy is. We can see something that's going to happen very near fulfillment to when the prophet says it. But then up ahead, we see something else, and we don't know how long is it going to be. And then up ahead, we can see something else. And how long is it going to be? We don't know. But we see it all at one time because we're up on a mountaintop. That's the way this biblical prophecy is. So within these verses, there is some near fulfillment of what God is saying in verses 6 through 9. Some things that happened immediately or within a few months of this prophecy that happened. And then there's things that come along when Jesus had his first advent on earth and came as an infant and, and as a man and ministered on earth. And then there's some things in these verses here that haven't happened yet because they'll come in that time, in the millennial reign. And I'll put a plug in for tonight. If you want to know more about the millennium, come back tonight. We're going to talk about it and ask the pastor. But that's what biblical prophecy is like. So there are these, these areas. And that's what we have in these verses. God says the temple will be more glorious. This one that you're building right now, it looks small right now, but it's going to be more glorious than the one that Solomon built. That would have been very hard for them maybe to understand, but he's about to explain what happened. He declares in verse number six, he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. And then he says in, in verse number seven, I'm going to shake all the nations. This shaking, by the way, shows God's sovereignty. God's sovereign over creation. He made it. He created it. He's the one that gave life. He has the ability to shake all these things. But he also has the ability to shake, to bring judgment against all these nations. You know, mankind may feel like he's the one in control and he's the one in charge, but really he's not. God is sovereign. God is the one who rules in the affairs of men. And there's a day of judgment coming. That's what this is talking about. There's a shaking. There's a day of judgment that is coming. The things that are temporal will be over, and the things that are eternal will begin. Let's go to Hebrews real quickly. Hebrews chapter 12, because this is the only place in the New Testament where Haggai is quoted. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 25. Hebrews 12, 25 through 28. It says this, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall, we not, shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. And here it is. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath proclaimed, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifying the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And that's what God says here. I'm shaking all these things, that that which is, which is temporal may be done away with, and that which is eternal will remain. There is a glorious future coming. There is a future prophecy. One day that will happen. This eternal kingdom to which Christians belong is the glorious future. We serve God now with, as acceptable, with godly reverence, knowing that that glorious future is coming, that those eternal things we work for now cannot be removed. They will be eternal, and that glory will be for God. And then we see here the desire of nations. So we begin to close here, the desire of nations. 
We sang about it this morning. We saw it here. I love that phrase. It's really good. Now, some people may have a modern translation. It may say treasure. And it does mean both. It's actually the same word. It does mean both. Desire of nations, treasure. And it can be translated that way as well. Now, immediately this is verse number 8. When God says in verse number 8, the gold is mine, the silver is mine, God is actually telling the people here in that time period, I know you don't have the same amount of money that you had that Solomon had. David spent a lot of time gathering stuff for Solomon. He couldn't build a temple, but he gathered a lot of things, and people paid tribute, and he got a lot. He had money. He had stuff. And Solomon's temple was glorious. These people, man, they're saying, we don't have that money. God says, don't worry about it. It's mine anyway. I'll give it to you. And here's, a, here's an immediate fulfillment of that. You know what the Persians ended up doing? They ended up paying for the temple. They paid for the temple to be rebuilt. So they didn't have to worry about that physical treasure that we needed here on earth temporarily. The Persians paid for it. Now, don't forget this, because here's what happened many hundreds of years later. Herod the Great, in an attempt for glory for himself, remodeled this temple and made it more glorious even from a physical standpoint, from an earthly standpoint. He remodeled it and was there and was made. So yeah, it was more glorious because on an earthly vision, it had more glory than Solomon's. It was remodeled. It was, it was uh, done over. So we do have a near fulfillment right there. But in the future, in the millennial reign of Christ, all people, all Gentiles will be bringing their treasures into Jerusalem. When God says the desire of nations shall come, it's a, it's a reference to that millennial time period. When Jesus is king, when he's reigning from earth in Jerusalem, all nations bring their tribute in. Jesus will be on the throne. It will fulfill prophecy from Isaiah chapter 60. So there would be treasure that would be brought into the temple in the future. But here's the real desire of nations, the heavenly treasure. And the heavenly treasure is Jesus Christ. He's the real desire of nations. I love these two things that Charles Spurgeon said. The true desire of all nations is Jesus, even if the nations themselves did not know it. And isn't that good? People search their whole life to be satisfied by something, and the only thing that can satisfy is Jesus Christ. He's the real desire. He's the real desire of all nations. I had to share this with you, too, because it's so good. Charles Spurgeon said this, too. He's the desire of nations, too, because we, his people, should desire him for all the nations. A missions focus in that phrase. In other words, our desire should be that other nations and other peoples can know God so they can worship him and glorify him and be saved and have a relationship with him as those who are saved have a relationship with him. He's the desire that we have there. Jesus, the desire of nations, by the way, did come to this temple. The desire of nations came to this very temple when he was brought in by Mary and Joseph as a baby. And he was blessed by Simeon. Luke chapter 2. And the glory of this temple was greater than the glory of Solomon because God incarnate, Jesus Christ, came and walked in it and talked in it and taught the people in the temple and around the temple. And he is great, and this glory was greater as well because at the end of verse 9, it says that he will bring peace. God will bring peace in this place, and the peace was made for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. The reconciliation, the redemption that we have through the forgiveness of sins brings peace with God in our lives. The peace is there. There's peace in the millennial reign. That'll happen there too. There's, a, there's all kinds of references in here, but the peace that brought God the day that he died for us on the cross and paying our price brings us great peace. And so while it may seem to the people in Haggai at that time that this temple was small, 
and it wasn't as glorious, and we don't have the money to do it, and we just, it would be more glorious. And God said, do the work. Be strong. Do the work. Do not fear. The people of Haggai's day were very discouraged. They'd experienced so much that had made them disappointed, but God told them to move forward anyway. Let me ask you this today, Christian. Are you discouraged sometimes in the work that you're called to do? Are you weary sometimes in what you do? Do you feel like it doesn't matter? Are you discouraged by what's happening in the world around us? But take courage, Christian. He's still at work. He's calling us to do the same thing that he was back then. Will you answer him today? If you're here today and you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, make that day today as well. He's standing ready now to forgive and to save you. Don't wait. Come to him today. Do what the Lord has asked you to do today and be obedient to his voice. Let's stand together here as we close this morning.